Woo! <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Now. Woo! <laughs> that would actually work better for the Halloween episode. Ooh. <laughs> Welcome to this post-Halloween episode of the Plants and Pipettes podcast. No, this is not Halloween. Halloween I was said post-Halloween. Ah, this okay. is like... I'm not post, paying attention post, to like you. It's far, far away mm-hmm. from Halloween. Okay. By now, you've all like eaten all your candies, feel very sick, thrown up most of your candy, mm. um, and are back to work now, I guess, um, where you guys... I don't think most people get Halloween off. I think it's only in Germany that we get Halloween off. Okay. Isn't it? So these poor people have to like work and then in the evening have to go trick-or-treating and then have to work again the next day. Um, if you're in the US, can you tell us if you get a public holiday for for Halloween? I think you yeah. don't. We only get it because a long time ago, some guy got into a church and then hammered some stuff on the door of the church. Ah, is it that thing Yeah, it's Reformation Day, oh, yeah. so Martin Luther King was... Not Martin Luther King. Fuck. <laughs> Which one is it? Martin, Martin, Martin Luther without Martin the king. Martin Luther without the king. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not normally so ignorant. I mean, I'm normally so ignorant, but like, I'm also tired. <laughs> that is Martin also one Luther. Of these things where you, like your brain autocompletes, yeah. right? You start saying the first syllables and then you're autocomplete. Um, yeah. So Martin Luther um, decided that he wanted to reform the church and they were like, hell no. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to set up Lutheranism, and which pretty worked pretty well for me. the first like comment like the first online hate comment uh, of like what 120 things completely unasked for yeah um, and then he hit for a while I'm looking at photos of him now and like every single photo he's like hella shifty like he's like every single one he's giving the side eye yeah because that's one image that exists of him yeah so everybody yeah I guess everybody's painting off the same yeah. same original image yeah he's um, an attractive man he's a, a very attractive man <laughs> no he's not no um <laughs> Speaking of none of that, uh, you've, what have you been up to? You've been to a course, right? You've been to, to a workshop course day training thing. Yeah, I went to a workshop about um, science communication. It was more about communicating science, being different from science communication because it was aimed at communicating science no matter which um, field or level you're doing it in. So it could be communicating your own science as a scientist to other scientists, but also communicating your science to the public, like mm-hmm. in all these different ways. Um, and it was more about like storytelling and how you should tell a story. So what are the good elements of telling a story? What are the tools that you can use to make sure people remember your story and also remember facts from your stories and not just the fun parts of the story? Um, it was organized again by, not by my institute actually, but by um, kind of the... Some campus the, management, right? Yeah, it's like the collective. So I'm, I'm at a place which is called Science Park where there's a lot of different scientific institutes and like some startups and a university. And they're all kind of working together to try to build this scientific environment, which is very international and also like quite like forward thinking and... Um, very uh, broad so not just focusing on like research science but what about like yeah startups or business or what about the communication side of it or the political side and they've been really active in the last few months I would say and it's it's been really cool they're running a lot of stuff workshops which are freely available to people at the university or in the institutes um, yeah and I went along to this one last Friday and it was really nice um, 
it's always a big it's a bit of a gamble when you take a day off work to go to a workshop because you think well am I going to make up the time I've lost in work am I going to learn enough or is it going to be a massive waste of my time and this was very much not and it was really fun and nice yeah nicely done I would say so you took something away from it because that's always my fear yeah uh, often um, or some of these workshop ha- workshops have a tendency to cater to like absolute beginners and if you have like worked already a, l- a little bit in science communication and you're looking sort of for fresh new ideas these workshops sometimes can be pro- um, sort of like covering the, the basics mm. um, but it's yeah no this was like less a workshop about like oh you should be on Twitter and you should make sure you tweet at least once an hour so the algorithms like favor you it was less that stuff and more like mm-hmm. okay so let's think about how to tell a story because no matter which environment you are in you should be telling stories if you want yeah. to get like yeah. response and cool. this was it was kind of talking about the basic thing of humans which makes us like different news so she was also breaking down like okay news stories like novelty is really great to have like some emotional interests is, is great you know sex always sells but also this and going through the different things of how to like communicate yeah. yeah how to communicate at, at like nice. a basic level and i don't mean basic as in like boring i mean like the yeah. the first thing you need to know is that and it was the, really the yeah really works, good yeah. yeah cool nice what about you um yeah i unfortunately i didn't have a good like workshop like this in a, in a while um <laughs> no what, what what did i do i didn't do much <laughs> i'm a very <laughs> it sounds always so sad but actually I'm, I'm very happy right now at home with the baby and going to classes and stuff there so it's more my baby t- uh, learning stuff in workshops uh, Yara, how, to how, how is it for you as a man staying staying at home is that really hard for you is, is yeah, it hard it's so, much, it's so much harder than for all the women who stay at home <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i know what you're referencing we talked about this before we like, talk about sexism in parenting a lot um yeah because like what what happens to me often when i go to these classes um there's like eight mothers and me uh, everybody uh, has their child with them um and then they often ask me how it is for me to stay at home uh, while they're all also staying at home and taking care of the kids. So and actually, that's something I think we should ask the audience. How would you respond to this if you were in your own position? You got said, you got asked the question, how is it for you? Yeah. So I think Yarm, the way Yarm responded, which was to say, I like it. How do you find it? Is really the best way because it kind of puts the question back on them and makes them think that, you know why are they asking this to a man if they wouldn't ask it to a woman i think that's the appropriate way to do it um but how would you respond do you think there's a better way to respond do you think there's a a way to kind of subtly tell people that maybe they have a gender bias with their expectations without being too unfriendly or too confrontational let us know yeah yeah, i'm interested in that as well because it's something i i experience more and more often um i mean i'm I'm a white cis male in this society, so discrimination is not some, something I usually encounter. And when I encounter it, it's like this very mild discrimination. It's, it's like, also this weird, bizarre, like positive discrimination where yeah. like, they're implying that you're useless and you shouldn't be able to care for your child. But at the same time, they're also like congratulating you, like, "Oh my god, it's so clever! You like know <laughs> yeah. how to like, like Keep pick up your lives. own baby. Yeah, you've like you've kept your baby alive." And it's like, "Yeah, because it's my baby. Like, I have a lot of <laughs> investment here." Like, yeah. turns out, like. <laughs> Yeah, and I still have to like learn ways to respond to that. Um, I mean, for me, it's really I don't want to ca- compare myself in any way to anybody who has uh, to who experienced like really terrible discrimination because that's way more common. Um, but yeah, it's it's a new thing for me, and uh, yeah, I'm happy for any like 
clever, like not assholey ways <laughs> to respond to these questions because Helpful, they come up more and more. Positive ways to yeah. to respond to people. Yeah. Okay, let's. Shall we do the paper? Let's do the paper. Let's get a paper. It's the paper of the week. I heard you're talking about flowers today, Arm. Yeah, my paper this week is um, the MCTP snare complex regulates florigen transport in Arabidopsis. Um, wait, wait, wait. Snare complex? MCTP snare. Okay. Um, do you know what that means? Nope. Good. <laughs> I would have been severely <laughs> impressed. Um, it was completely new to me. But um, it's from Lu Liu and from the group of How You um, in uh, Singapore from the uh, what is the Bi Department of Biological Science and uh, Temasek Life Science Laboratory. I saw something recently about how Singapore is one of like the really great... Um, Small universities are doing really well. Like Singapore is one of these examples of so like a lot of the the top publishing um, institutes and in countries in the world they have like the Max Planck or like these old scientific institutes which have had a lot of time to gain like a reputation and get a lot of money. And Singapore, I saw recently an example of there's some universities there where like they're very young, they're quite small, but they're really like they're doing better, like they're excelling in, yeah. in science. So actually, I didn't um, write down where this was published but i think i found it in plant cell um but you'll find it in the show notes and what journal that was but it was one of the like high impact ones mm -hmm. because i'm lazy and i look through those first <laughs> um and so this thing is about florigen um it's right in the title and florigen is involved in flowering mm -hmm. and i wrote down here flowering at the right time is important for the plant um because the f flowering is the transition into the next generation and it uh, it's a huge investment like it it costs a lot of energy um to make flowers to make seeds and it often um for for many plants like arabidopsis in this case it also marks sort of the end of life of arabidopsis mm -hmm. it doesn't continue to grow after that yeah a lot so, of annual plants they flower and then they're done and so the decision when to start flowering is a very important decision and that's why uh, a lot of external signals are uh, read there mm -hmm. right in the lab we what we use there to trigger this is the transition from short day which is a uh, um, 12 uh, hours of light and 12 hours of darkness to a long day where we have what 14 16, 16 hours eight, of, usually yeah 16 hours of light and eight hours of, of night um, that's for some species not for like some species yeah. just flower yeah but for Arabidopsis, this is one of the major things. <laughs> Tegan's giving me a sign that says, like, maybe <laughs> not. Um, but there's many some accessions are more like fussy about their light. Yeah. Like Ara some Arabidopsis, like Colzera, will flower under any, but obviously it flowers better under under some. But yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, but there's the the main point here is that they integrate a number of external signals, mm -hmm. right? There's like the day length of day, the light intensity, temperature. Uh, some nutrient availability might mm. play into this so they take all of these outside uh, measurements and they integrate that and then they build a signal that's pretty much the go signal and um, in, in Arabidopsis and several other plants where they found um, homologs of that this is the um, florigen and the concept of this was already um, described in 1936 that there's Whoa, like really? a single trigger but uh, what this trigger actually is was something that um, they 
uh, looked for for a very long time. Um, so Florigen as a concept exists since um, the late 1930s, but the molecule that is Florigen is only very recently known, I think in the last 10 years or something, we have a good idea. And part of that is the flowering locus T, mm -hmm. um, that's uh, abbreviated FT. Um, that's the one that we found most often. And it's, uh, it's a protein and um, this protein is part of this Florigen signal and this protein has to be transported. Because what happens then when Florigen, when the trigger, when sort of the go signal is there and Florigen is made, um, it, has, it is made in the leaves and then it has to reach the shoot apical meristem, mm -hmm. which is something we talked about in the past. Yeah, so the shoot apical meristem is kind of this tiny little cluster of cells which you find like at the tip, that's the apice, the apical part, um, and that's where the leaves come from and later on where the flowers come from. So it's kind of the, the bud that everything grows out of on the plant. But usually it's quite protected because it's quite um, fragile. Yeah. So often it can't signal the outside world. Actually, it's protected from the outside world. Yeah. So it makes sense that the leaves have to like say, hey, there's a lot of light or it's very cold today and then send yeah. a message. Yeah. Um, so it can't, yeah, it can't figure out it itself. It can't make the trigger, the, the florigen itself. The, um, so this FT protein is made in the leaves and it has to move to uh, the shoot apical meristem and it does that through the flow, phloem. Phloem? Uh, phloem. Phloem. No, phloem. I'm kidding. Phloem. <laughs> it's phloem. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's one of these. Uh, phloem. <laughs> Um, the phlegm. Um, yeah. So the phlegm is different from the azelum <laughs> because <laughs> there's, so there's vascular tissue in like these plants which have vascular tissue. Not all of them do, but it's basically tubes that go up and down the plant to transport things long distances. The xylem is mostly transporting water and like some like mineral nutrients, and the phlegm is all about the sugars. Yeah, I, so it goes through the phlegm. My, my note is flow makes sugar go from leaf to other parts. Very good. Yeah, because <laughs> the sugar is usually made in the leaf because they got the green bits. Yeah. And good. <laughs> to get into the flow, I'm completely at a loss now to say that. So. If you don't sound like you're flow. To the flow. Um, <laughs> Just say flow. Flow. It's, I feel like I feel like it's Pretend a it's like a word from from, from Rick and Mort, Rick and Morty where they they um how a ding a dingus no not dingus how a and I watched the show, man. Um, and then they have like all of these like made up words. To me, it sounds like flotus or potus, like this president of the United States, like flom. Flom. Okay. Anyway, so, <laughs> the, the the structure of this works like this: that you have the the phloem itself are these dead cells that um, build a pipe uh, with sieves elements, so they have holes on the top and bottom, mm -hmm. and they are attached like top to bottom to each other, and like all of these big long straw, like a big long straw. And they are loaded by companion cells that sit around the, the outside, the perimeter of the phloem. There are the companion cells, and the companion cells have a plasma membrane and plasmodesmata, so the, their membrane, and little pores that they can use to load stuff into the phloem and unload stuff from the phloem into mm. the cells. Because the, the sieve cells are basically dead, so they can't really think, whereas, and I'm using the air quotation, so the companion cells basically have a nucleus and do the thinking and yeah. just shove stuff onto this. Basically, the, the sieve cells are kind of a conveyor belt and yeah. the, the companion cells are the actual workers, the people putting it on yeah. there. They load stuff in there, take stuff out, and so on. And so Florigen, uh, or the FT protein, um, has to make its way from the leaves to the companion cells and then from the companion cells into the sieve cells mm -hmm. where it's the, which is then the actual phloem and then gets transported um, to the shoot epicameristem. 
and nobody knows how that specific part worked until now. Um, I heard that people didn't even know if it was the FT protein that was moving or if it was the FTRNA that was moving and then getting made into a protein at the yeah. the Shiebikul Maristem, but I think I'm very behind on this research. Yeah, from, from what I understood from the introduction here, where mostly I learn about the background of, of these uh, studies, um, the idea... <laughs> if you can't tell, we're not experts in all of the fields that we present, so in case that wasn't clear to you yet. And if that wasn't clear to you yet, you should really go and reevaluate your own life choices and sense of self-awareness because... Clearly, we are stupid. <laughs> Clearly, we are talking shit. Um, um, we trust other scientists and we read their work. Yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how it works. In the introduction, you lay down what is known and how you build on that in your research. Mm -hmm. And this is how, based on that, based on what I write in the introduction, the idea that the protein has to be moved um, it seems to be at least uh, consensus now. or okay. established to a point that, um, yeah, this is not under debate anymore. Um and as often we see like very important things we like very slowly gradually figure out like one step after the other and this is now just a step of the transition from the companion cells into the flow um, so this is sort of the, the setup what they're looking for <laughs> yeah. um, so the study begins they they look at a known um, known protein and I don't think they actually started looking for uh, florigen that, that wasn't their, their goal they looked at a protein that's called SYP1 to one or SIP121, mm -hmm. which is a Q-snare protein. Mm. And a Q-snare protein is involved in trafficking from vesicles from the Golgi apparatus to the plasma membrane. Mm -hmm. So the Golgi apparatus is like this stacks of membrane where a lot of um, proteins and other metabolites are made. And then they're often packed the package, into vesicles, yeah. which are just like little bubbles of membrane. There's some load in there that can be metabolites, that can be... Um, so proteins that can be other things it's like the warehouse of Amazon where things are not usually constructed but they might be modified and boxed and shipped to other parts of the country <laughs> yes. and or sell and there's underpaid workers in there and <laughs> and the <laughs> owner of the of, of Golgi apparatus gets very rich oh insanely dear. rich um, so <laughs> so this protein SYP121 is involved in this uh, vesicle trafficking and um, w when they knocked out this protein um, they saw that if the um, the plant flowers later under long day conditions so usually going back to the introduction when you put Arabidopsis some accessions into long day they start flowering <laughs> going back to your introduction which I ruined <laughs> which absolutely ruined okay um, so uh, under long day usually some Arabidopsis accessions they start flowering if you knock out this protein or the gene for the protein um, then this delays this flowering so mm -hmm. there seems a problem in the in the triggering of the go signal of saying like let's they're flower now realizing they're supposed to flower okay um, while on a short day this doesn't happen so if you keep the plants on short day and you knock out the, the gene or you don't knock out the gene they flower at the same time so it seems to be this activation of flowering signal that is affected mm -hmm. um, and then yeah they did some some basic stuff what you usually do then is you look at where is the protein made and they found it's made in the in the rosette leaves they used some gas staining to do that um, they did some fusions to fluorescent proteins to figure out where it's located after it's made um, it's found in the plasma membrane Mm -hmm. And um, then they started to figure out what they, uh, the thing might interact with. Um, <laughs> what, the Q-snare? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the Q-snare, the SYP121. Uh, one one. 
Yeah, they have to have terrible names. Um, yeah, this is a lot of um, biology. That's why we like the fun names. Yeah. Um, Are there any fun names coming up here? <laughs> not in this study, but on the blog uh, in the past. <laughs> when you listen to this podcast in the past, for us in the future, there is a cool uh, Sorry, article I'm about fun names of genes. I'm looking at the abstract of this paper, and there is a really fun name. There's one called Quirky. Spoiler. Shit. <laughs> so what they're doing now, um, they have this protein... <laughs> They don't know exactly what it uh, does. They know it's involved in this like flowering signaling. Um, and now they want to know if it's interacting with something. And oh, I think I know what it's interacting with. <laughs> with what is it interacting? Is it interacting with a quirky protein? Yes, it's interacting wow. with quirky. Quirky is an MCTP, oh, that's a not mul multiple C2 domain and transmembrane region protein. Um, and it is known that these MCTPs, they interact with snare proteins. So like the group of snares interacts in... And in general, with the group of MCTP. Uh, um, so SIP1 to 1 is a snare, and now they screened uh, for interaction with all of the known MCTPs. Okay. And uh, they found Quirky. Quirky! Why is it called Quirky? I couldn't figure that out from the paper, why it's called Quirky. Um, hey, readers, listeners, tell listeners. us why it's called Quirky, because yeah. we're too lazy to do it ourselves. What's, what's Quirky about that protein? Yeah, I mean, I hope it has a... I mean quirky i hope it's it's yeah quirky maybe just the researchers were quirky who named it mm. um very edgy maybe even. i'm imagining it has like like mutated salix like it kind of like looks okay, weird I'm, I'm looking it up no it's fine it's fine arabidopsis.org maybe involving calcium signal regulates roots maybe it's a yeah. root thing a fruit dehiscence which i think an organ development which i think means i might be correct I think points to Tegan. I mean, usually people say quirky and they just mean like a little bit bent, right? Like it's not. Yeah. <laughs> like you're not quirky. Stop trying to be quirky. I mean, yeah, I don't know where, like it's the from the Go terms, it's animal organ development and positive regulation of flower development. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know exactly why it's called quirky, but I it's interacting with I would be very suspicious of anything that described itself as quirky. <laughs> like if somebody had on their Tinder profile quirky, I would not date that person. But I would date somebody. <laughs> SYP one to one, on the other hand, absolutely <laughs> decided to date quirky. Hell yes. Um, they're dating, and so they now like um, had a closer look at what quirky is actually doing. So they also did the, the knockouts. Saw the same thing as in SIP one to one. So long day flowering was delayed. Short day flowering not affected. Um, they mm -hmm. so which just from this one phenotype already looks uh, similar. They find it also um, uh, expressed in the leaves, um, also in the companion quirky? cells. Quirky, quirky is made in the leaves and quirky mm -hmm. is made in the companion cells. Okay. And interestingly, from the gas staining that they did, so gas is a method where you look where a protein is made. Um, it's made in similar locations where the FT locus, uh, the florigen, is Ooh. made. And this brought them to the idea that it might be linked um, to florigen. That and the fact that also it had a flowering phenotype. And also it has a flowering phenotype. Um, and then they uh, did double mutants and the double mutants had the same phenotype oh, the, as what the single... The, the, the mutant of the, flor and the, the florigen and the... Quirky and sip. Okay. So the snare and the M... Oh my goodness, quirky and snip. Yeah, quirky and snip. Um, and again, same thing, like no additional phenotype that was uncovered by this. So that means they might 
interact or downstream of one another or something mm-hmm. like this so you don't make it worse by knocking out both yeah, of them. Yeah, the idea is if, if two things are in the same pathway, then like by breaking one of them, you already screw up the pathway and you make the plant sick. Um, so then if you break the next one, the pathway doesn't usually get worse because you've already broken that pathway. But if they're working in different pathways, when you break both of them together, you often get like a worse phenotype. And then it's like, okay, not only have you broke that one pathway, but now you've broken a second pathway. So now it looks even sicker. So Yeah, and that might be when they are in redundant pathways that are involved like both in flowering, mm. but on sort of two separate parallel tracks. And the thing about like biology is it loves redundancy. Yeah. Like the lo- there's always a situation where, not always, but often. Yeah. And um, then they also did some yeast hybrid um, interaction assays and could find that Quirky directly interacts with FT, so the Florigen, which was the final thing they needed to to show that these three guys have something to do together. And based on that and some more evidence from the vesicle transport part, where to be honest, I did not fully understand um, the the experiment. So have a look at the paper that we link. Um, we appreciate honesty. Um, they they came up with a model that's also described there, which uh, g- g- uh, works like this, that the FT signal is made in the Golgi apparatus and then loaded into a vesicle by binding to the SYP121 and the um, quirky protein, or quirky binds to the FT on the vesicle, and then you have the SIP121 that's involved in the attachment to the plasma membrane. Um, where it then the, the vesicles fuse with the membrane and sort of push their, their loads out to the outside of the cell. And in this oh, case, cool. it loads from the companion cell into the phloem, where it then moves with um, the stream of the phloem to the SAM. Uh, so shoot apicomerystem. Uh, and this is the, the mechanism that they describe here. And it's just, it's another puzzle piece in the, the path of this Florigen signal uh, which is very important to understand. If, like now, you could imagine uh, flowering time is a very important trait for crops. Mm-hmm. So now there's another point where we could potentially engineer something to delay or make it more efficient. Like if we want to like move the flowering times earlier or later, this might be a way. This like unloading from the Golgi apparatus into the phloem. This might be a good way to. Um, yeah, delay or and just as like up. a general curiosity of like how the hell do plants know when it's the time to flower? Like, yeah. I mean, it's this idea that like we as humans have a certain amount of understanding of what's going on around us. How do plants have that understanding? And yeah. it's kind of amazing that. Yeah, and it, I find it always amazing how it comes down to like very simple molecular processes or interactions of just like few things, um, but it's both robust enough and efficient enough that it gets the job done, that you have the, the flowering at the right time and the, plants ha- the plant has a good chance of survival and, and making it to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's the paper. And it's available online via ResearchGate. I think it's closed access on mm-hmm. the website, but you can get it via ResearchGate. Ah, that's good to know. That. Well, that's where I found it just now and it seems to... Yeah, I had to VPN into my old work (laughs) to Uh, get access. And I think you should say that. But this is um, uploaded (laughs) by the author. So this is quite quite a common thing that when um, things are behind a paywall, the authors often get their own links, which they're allowed to put legally on their website, on Twitter, and they can share them. So if you're an author and you get one of these links, don't think, oh, what do I need this for? My my institute already has access. Put it online, put it on your ResearchGate profile, put it on your Twitter, put it on your wherever, because it helps people who don't have access get into the data. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we'll put the ResearchGate link then also in the show notes. 
that you can find it there. Yay. Yeah, so that's my story. And let's move on to this. What are we doing? Mm. favorite plant that's still my favorite of the music that we have yeah it's one of it the just makes me always happy it's the earliest that we have mm. and uh yeah um i think we haven't done this before but yoram correct me if i'm wrong um every single week yoram and i do the podcast and we say hey we really need to set up some sort of like documentation maybe like microsoft has already developed a tool like let's say it has like table format and you can put <laughs> things in so that you can like search to know if you've already presented for example a scientist or a favorite plant previously and every week we don't do it um and then complain <laughs> that we don't have interns or like enough time or effort to actually do it so in my defense it's already a struggle for me to just get the links from you for the stuff that you talk about i often true. have to google like, like I, i'm willing to admit that i'm the weak link in this chain of two but um <laughs> okay i would also like to notice that like this morning <laughs> you said i am doing this scientist and i said i literally did her last week so <laughs> that's a bad choice um <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> Yeah, but also she had different names online depending on which websites yeah, um, you yeah. had. So, but also okay. I didn't even bother to check and I immediately forget everything you say. That's so reassuring. <laughs> oh, um, wow, scientific communication going really well. We can't communicate to each other. <laughs> Let's listen now to a story about Texas brevifolia. Did we do it already? I don't know. Uh, what is it? Pacific U. No. This is you spelled Y-E-U and not E-W-E, which is a female sheep in English. <laughs> well done, English. Um, <laughs> when I was a child, I read a comic book called Foot Rot Flats, which is about raising sheep in New Zealand. And they kept on mentioning ewes and I was very confused because it's not really a word we use in uh, non-farming jar- jargon. How is it spelled? Y- E-W-E. No, the your plant. Y-E-W. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is spelling with Yarm and Tegan. Yarm is spelled with a J, which is confusing, but yeah. he's German. Yeah, there's a story to that that I won't tell now. <laughs> um, so Pacific yew, this is a tree. It's a yew tree. It looks like other yew trees. It's a big tree thing that's like 10 to 15 meters tall. Not it's super tall, it but... It sounds like a tree that's made for like stupid pl- uh, wordplay. Yeah, whatever. It's a tree, it's taller than me. And if you've seen a U, you'll recognize it. It looks like a U. If you haven't seen a U because you maybe grew up in Australia and you're used to eucalyptuses and not U's, then that's fine. It's understandable. And if your boss turns to you and says, hey, Tegan, what tree is that? And you say, I don't know. And then he kind of looks at you like you're stupid. It's not your fault and you're not stupid. It's not a eucalyptus. You know that at least. Um, this is a U. <laughs> um, okay. Okay, now you're ominous what it is. Yeah, I saw the German name now. Oh my god, what's it in German? It, in German, it's Eibel. Huh? Eibel. 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 E I B E. Die Pazifische Eibel. I think all German tree names are kind of like strange, right? Yeah. They have like an unnaturally large number of vowels, like Eiche. Yeah, yeah, Eiche, Eibel, Birke. It's um, German. Eh, 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 eh. Ah, weird. Uh, but now I, it's not that I would recognize it because I'm very bad at botany. Um, okay. But I know now what a U is technically. Okay, so U is kind of the general type of tree. This is a Taxus brevifolia. This is like the spe- the Pacific U specifically, specifically the Pacific U, um, and it's important because it is used. It is the original source of 
Parry, uh, paclitaxel. Do you know what paclitaxel is, Yoram? Wait, let me scroll to Wikipedia now. I don't know what no. it is. So paclitaxel is sold under the name Taxol, and it's a chemotherapy drug. So it's used in combination therapy to treat different types of cancer, breast, ovarian, lung cancer. Um, and it originally was found um, and produced from this tree, the Pacific mm. U. And it's quite important because it's basically... It works by interfering with microtubules, um, mm -hmm. which are kind of these, I don't know, structural components like of the cell. Like a skeleton of a cell, sort yeah, of. Yeah, but they also are important during, especially important during the division stage where they help kind of the chromosomes line up and everything like happen like in the right way. And um, yeah, they're very important. Uh, the, the, the drug, sorry, Taxol, interferes with the function of the microtubules during cell division. And this is pretty important for cancer treatment because although all of your cells in your body are dividing at some point, cancer cells, by definition, what makes them cancer cells is that they're dividing basically at an alarming rate. They're dividing too fast and in the wrong place. So when you target division specifically, you poison all of the cells but you largely poison the the cancer cells so you, you have like a higher hit rate for the cancer cells and that's why it works as a drug mm -hmm. um the problem is that it was okay so pari uh paclitaxel was first isolated in the 70s from this pacific u it was then approved for medical use in 1993 but the problem is that pacific u is actually quite slow growing um so it wasn't really a, it's, it's not super rare, but it, it's found in one area. So it wasn't really a good place to get this, this very important um, cancer treatment compound from. So what people did for a very long time is they took a precursor of the paclitaxel from other U species and then like did a kind of semi-synthetic pathway. So mm. they then like converted that chemically somehow to make the taxol, which could then um, be be treated and just recently i guess a few years ago only a company has also developed a way to make cell culture so this is where you take the tree and you take cells from that tree and you grow it in a kind of um like as a single cell mixture and they're now um managing to produce the taxol from that so yeah in big fermentation tanks which means mm -hmm. that they no longer need to have the the original yew trees or even the other species of yew trees and do the extra synthesis they can now theoretically get it from these big fermentation tanks which is yeah. kind of cool yeah so cool. this is one of these trees which has somehow magical powers or has at least medicinal benefits which have now been proven by modern science which is a very important distinguish distinction. <laughs> distinction between um yeah Medicine and alternative medicine, because another word for alternative medicine is not medicine. Um, <laughs> but this is um, Taxol. And I think we should really do some some blog posts about medicinal plants yeah. in the future, because I think there's some really cool stuff. Like, Yeah, I think so too. I mean, sometimes I mean, it would help for others, I think, as well, if we do the work, because if you look for medicinal plants, you also often find very dodgy evidence and dodgy stuff. Mm. Um where there is no proper research it's just like sort of hearsay about like this plant will treat your cancer or this plant will help you with a stomach ache um there's another really important one which is artemisinin annua which is um no i don't think it's important the origin of an anti-malarial drug and i think actually we can talk about that because um i think the scientist who discovered that or did a lot of work with that was also a Chinese woman, so we should really discuss her at some stage. But yeah, and we, I, I just commented that because we have a good friend of us who worked on artemisinin a lot um, and did some really cool work with that that we can mention then in the process as well. 
Yep, sorry. The species is called Artemisia, not Artemisinin. Artemisinin is the product that comes from it. Yeah. Sorry about that. And yeah. it's made in the trichomes, right? But maybe Glandular trichomes. Yeah. That's something for another plant of the week <laughs> and another um, researcher of the week. Yeah, I really want to find her name. All right. Anyway, you go. Uh, I go now. Diversity in the class. Science. Um, today it's me uh, for, for <laughs> today it's is me talking about non-wire researchers in plant science um, and I already announced it I think two weeks ago that I wanted to have a look a little bit into the um, Indian research community um, because I know that there's very active research happening there and for me as a Westerner, it's a research that I often don't see, although it's very well done and very valuable uh, research. Uh, and that's why I started looking a little bit into that. F through that, I learned that uh, medicine and computer science and physics and mathematics are way more popular um, than plant science. Um, I saw way more like female researchers uh, in these fields than from plant science. Um, which is also an interesting learning. And I chose someone that we've done already before, so I chose a different person. So well done. <laughs> I, um, I chose uh, Sipra Guha Mukherjee. I'm sorry for butchering that name. Um, uh, she, Sipra. Sipra Guha Mukherjee. Um, she is um, a botanist uh, and a researcher. Uh, actually, now in this notes, I don't have her name. Uh, not her name, her her. Uh, date of birth but I think 13th of July 1938 yes and um, so she uh, studied in, in uh, India first and then moved uh, so she studied at uh, Delhi uh, D Delhi is it pronounced right properly Delhi University mm -hmm. um, and uh, found it very inspiring there and um, then moved on uh, for uh, to let me get the, uh, to Michigan State University. Um, and there she said, uh, I, there's an, a PDF that we'll link where it's a little uh, a short uh, autobiographic article that she wrote about her own uh, career. And she, she writes there um, that although she worked there on the subunit structures of aspartate, transcarb amylase and isozymes of peroxidases, and she was very inspired by doing this work, but in, at the time, there were new discoveries in molecular biology that overshadowed a lot of other good research, and that was very frustrating for her. Um, and then she moved to, to uh, uh, in, in Europe on a symposium. She got in contact with uh, a professor from China who found her work very inspiring. Um, and uh, where she also... Uh, um, yeah, presented her work then in China, which at the time, this was in 1984, I guess, was um, even less common than today. This like international exchange. I mean, it already happened, but I have the feeling today we fly way more across the globe for different meetings than it was probably the case in like the 70s and 80s. Although if she's from India going to China, it's like one of the closest places. I can. Yeah, but I mean, she China's a big country, worked though. in the US, then had a symposium mm -hmm. in Europe and then... yeah. Um, yeah, but what uh, what I found very interesting uh, w w um, in her story that she wrote about as well is um, that she experienced a lot of negative attitude towards her research uh, because uh, of her uh, of her being a woman. 
I'm shocked. Yes, <laughs> um, she said that was a, um, a big problem that she 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 lacked inspiration and encouragement from higher ups uh, because there were f uh, there were ex essentially no women there. She said the few women that are that were known at the time, like uh, Madame Curie or, or Rosalind Franklin, they were sort of too far away to efficiently work as uh, inspiration role models for her own research. Um, and apart from that, there wasn't really anything, um, especially not for her career in India where, when she when she so was. So she was in coming India. up in like the sixties and the seventies was kind of when she was yeah. getting into things, yeah. And so um, that was a big struggle for her that she she very often was was met with, um, like she wasn't accepted with her research because of uh, of her being a woman, especially an Indian woman, and. Um, but still, she said that she she closes this article with saying that even uh, when she looking back now, she feels uh, still fortunate about the events and achievements in her career because she was uh, very successful still also then uh, in India. And uh, she, the only thing that she she re regrets or that she would do different now is uh, what she says is uh, to understand the psyche of many of my contemporary scientists and administrators and their attitude to women so to better deal with the rejection mm -hmm. that she experienced there and um, she f she says she feels that a lot of precious time was wasted smoothing ruffled feathers and pacifying many important fellow scientists yeah it's quite interesting because i've heard from so my my institute that I'm currently at, we actually have um, something called a Minerva Lounge, where when um, female scientists come, we get a chance to discuss with them issues about um, being a woman in science because it's it's still underrepresented in my field. And actually, I've heard kind of this opposite thing of where sometimes as a woman you just have to let men like be or roughly yeah. and like have their ego time, and then you can talk the real yeah. science. And it's this kind of conflicting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I find it, I find it interesting that some of these things I I found coming up even today. I mean, this is now over thirty years ago um, that she had to deal with these issues, and still today you sometimes had had. I I remember having meetings or seeing this stuff where. Um, you you had to have let certain men just have their time, like you said, like, and acknowledge their their issues. Um, and kind of like preen a little bit and like show yeah. off a little bit and then I mean it's it's not only men it's 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 not it doesn't need not to be a gendered men. thing <laughs> hashtag not all men doesn't need to be a gendered thing but it's it's quite interesting that as like one of the women who came actually said when she was first um, given a professor rank in a university where she was basically the only the female professor she would go into these meetings and she would try to go straight to the science and she was like upsetting people because they wanted to have the time to first show what they had done and only after the showing time was there then time to discuss the yeah. doing stuff which yeah and she basically came as for her experience she said it was worthwhile for the social element to like let them do the showing first which again it's it's her individual experience but it's quite interesting that this person yeah is having a similar like across the other side of the world is yeah. having an individual yeah. experience that's kind of similar yeah so um yeah, we still have a bit more to go there. And I, I think what we have in terms of emancipation now is that I also sometimes there can be difficult women now as well in these meetings. <laughs> Yarm is like, everything is worse because women are worse. No, 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 no. <laughs> not because of women. <laughs> Unfortunately, not everything turned to the better that like the men learned to be less dicks in meetings. But um, mostly things are getting better, right? Yeah, like mostly globally things are getting... Things are, I mean, there's some inequality which we'd really like to fix. There's some global like warming. Yeah, yeah. 
environmental things. Yeah. Okay, we have this discussion like every time. <laughs> so you can listen back to any episode from before where we discussed mm. this and <laughs> the things that are not working well. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, I just want to repeat her name at the end of this segment. It's Sipra Guha Mukherjee um, from India. Um, a very important plant researcher struggling with many of the same things that researchers are struggling today. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, wait. Yeah? Before we go to the fun, can I do the new, the new segment now? Uh, yeah. Do you have something prepared for the new segment? I don't have a jingle. Kind of-ish. Um, so we were thinking of making a new segment about cognitive bias. So this is um, by the definition cognitive bias is systematic pattern of deviation from norm or rationality in judgment. And basically, we wanted to include it in the podcast because the reality is we all have bias. And in many cases, this bias might even be a thing that is biologically necessary to help us survive in the world. So we might not be able to get around our biases that we've had from our childhood or that we even have from generations and generations of evolution. It's possible that biases will always be there in many ways. Um, but what is important is that not that we prevent ourselves from having bias because maybe we can't, but that we acknowledge and realize our biases and try to keep treat everybody fairly yeah. despite the bias. And when we come back to the diversity issue, often we don't realize we have the biases. So that's why we wanted to discuss it on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and with cognitive biases, um, this was something which has kind of been discussed and according to wikipedia there's a continually evolving list of cognitive biases which have been identified over the last six decades of research on human judgment and decision making um which is kind of convenient for a podcast because we can do this list and always have something new to talk about um so i wanted to talk about one of the ones that i heard about to start with which i think is quite fascinating just very briefly and it's called the ikea effect uh -huh. And this is the idea that we place a disproportionately high value on something that we ourselves have partially created. So the reason it has the IKEA name is because IKEA has a, a component where you make it yourself at home. Yeah. And they basically say, even if you make a terrible IKEA cupboard, you still think it's more beautiful than it really is because you put some of your time and effort into yeah. it. And in the the um, context of like capitalism and consumerism, IKEA has really the best situation going because they save money on construction um, because they don't have to put things together. But then you also not only you you have to pay less, which is 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 good for you going to buy their products, but then you also think the the product itself when you finish it is worth more because yeah. you yourself made it. And this is the thing that if Yoram and I both made a cupboard and it was exactly the same cupboard and Yoram's was actually better constructed than mine, there's something in me, this bias, which makes me think that mine is better. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, this has a real value, a commercial value, because I would pay more money for my one than for Yoram's one, even though Yoram's might be objectively better. And this is where we come into the importance of bias, because 
often we think things are objectively better when actually they're just subjectively better. It's just based on our own bias or our own opinions. Um, so that's the IKEA bias. I thought I would um, introduce that one of the first time off. Yeah, that's, and that's really cool. I'm just thinking about how we can make our listeners construct something for themselves about our podcast so they're valued higher <laughs> than all the other podcasts. I think the uh, the example I saw was that people um, did some origami and they basically had to bid on origami, like a little origami crane or something. And they're like, okay, 50 cents. But then they made them make the origami themselves and now they're bidding on the same product. And of course they bid higher because yeah. they made it. Yeah. But like the reality is this product is not necessarily worth more than the other. Like yeah, it's yeah. probably shittier. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's very, it's a very interesting concept. I have to think now about like uh, all the interaction you like in social media. Like I, for work, I had to do work stuff uh, with YouTube, and then you read a little bit into like what makes a successful YouTube channel. And the main thing that they often say is also like have this crowd involvement because if you respond to questions, like they write it in the comments, they write a question, and you respond to that in a YouTube video, then they feel like they contributed to your video and they engage more because they find it more interesting and they think, ah, this video now is cooler i have to show this more around or like i just enjoy this video and more that's exactly because the point. i took part in it so there's nothing wrong with the cognitive bias there's nothing wrong in thinking that your thing that you created is more valuable but it has real commercial value and that means that you as a consumer can be manipulated by companies by ikea or by creators or by whatever that you think something is more valuable because they're aware of this and they're using this as a way to like use your bias to make you pay more money towards them and this is something yeah. that's like i mean it's one of the reasons why like advertising is so terrifying because these companies they know about these things and yeah that's the glory of capitalism <laughs> capitalismus okay that's the ik effect that's i think it's, really it's cool super bias. cool and i love the name um let's try to get another cool one next week yeah yes yeah Okay, now we move forward. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Yarm, you have to begin the fun today, I think. Um, yes, uh, I start with something um, that's called the dynamic details. Of <laughs> I have pronunciation issues this week. The yeah. dynamic details of unusual plants captured in singular moments by photographer Helene Schmitz or Helen Schmitz or whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is on, this is uh, colossal.com. Um, it's just like very pretty pictures of different uh, plant features. Um, we'll link to that so you can have a look now uh, in your podcast app click on the link and have a look at that it's like very beautiful um, macro images of uh, plant features uh, not only macro but uh, very cool things of like um, Drosera stolonifera which is a carnivorous plant it has like these sticky droplets on the end of these sort of antenna like structures um, where insects then get trapped um, then there's other like pictures from pitcher plants. There is. Uh yeah, I'm showing. Me. Oh, it's very beautiful. That's a poppy. I love poppies. There's one of a poppy like thrusting itself outside of its um. Yeah. Its casing. Oh, really lovely. And what I find beautiful about this is not only beautiful photography. Um, she also included all of the like Latin names of the species, which is something that's often rare. Not even we do it when we take pictures in the botanical <laughs> garden. We have no idea what we're taking photos of, but in this case, you see very f uh, nice. Oh wow! You, you should just the carnivorous plants are so beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautifully done. I mm. really enjoyed looking at these pictures. Um, oh, I know what that is. Is that the banana? 
Uh, Musa Textilis. Uh, I think Musa is plant, right? Uh, plant. Musa is plant. Uh, Musa is banana. Is it? I think. I think that's the zumped banana we saw in the botanical gardens, like the um, velvet banana. Uh, Manila hemp, apparently. That looks like the zumped banana. No? No, maybe I'm wrong. Guys, is a banana? It's a species of banana, abaca. Mm. And if I look for German... Banana hump. Yeah, hump ba banana. Is banana hump the same as, as zumped banana? Probably not. Banana hump, banana zumped. But Musa is the banana family. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, um, have a look at these pictures. They're really beautiful. Um, yeah, it's really lovely. Yes, that was my first thing. Oh, I should do something now. Yes, uh, would be good. What am I doing? Oh, I saw a really interesting thing on Science Daily. It's a little bit old now. It's from the middle of September, but I just came across it a couple of weeks ago. Um, then I forgot to do it on the last couple of podcasts. Um, so it's called Early Rice Farmers Unwittingly Selected for Weedy Imposters. Um, and this is basically an idea that there's another form of mimicry, which I haven't heard of before, and it's called Vavilovian um, mimicry. Vavilovian, maybe. Mimicry. And it's an adaptation where weeds mimic domesticated plants because if they're growing next to plants that have value <laughs> yeah. and they look similar to them, they're less likely to be removed. And this only has value to those weeds if there's a human selective pressure because humans yep. are coming along and manually weeding out things that look wrong. And they're saying that this um, Vavilovian mimicry, that was really Australian, Vavilovian mimicry, um, is one of the reasons probably that one of the major weed pests of rice has is so successful now. So this pest is called barnyard grass. It's Echinocloa cruscalii mm -hmm. um, and they basically say that it spread from the Yangtze River region where it originated about a thousand years ago and it basically spread because it benefited from human cultivation practices where they were picking out other weeds oh, and I mean they're not only helping they're actually helping the weed because they're removing the other stuff so they're removing its competition yeah. and then it gets to um, spread as the rice spreads so it looks a lot like rice and it's just like hanging around there so this is kind of a really cool idea and I hadn't heard of that kind of mimicry before so it's a really nice concept cool yeah um, I I'm thinking about which one of the ones in my list I'm doing now. Um, there is, uh, let's do this one first. Uh, the paper for the 1000 plant genomes uh, is here now. We talked about this in the past. I think we had the yeah. 100 plant genome paper that we had to look at. No, we talked about the 1000 before, but we talked about the previous paper where they released the first um, 85 genomes mm -hmm. and they basically showed the database and the online tools that they were making available. And now they've actually released the final paper, which has all of the 1000, uh, it's like 1011 or 1000, a few more. Yeah, a few more uh, plant transcriptomes um, that they analyzed um, or they have the genomes but they also then the, the transcriptomes and from they now um, published a huge phylogenetic tree so a tree of relationship between these plant species um, and could then already perform some some first analysis on this and now this is available for other researchers and these tools are always super valuable because now you can build on that and do more and more in-depth looks uh, look between uh, uh, into the relationship between different species and uh, one finding that they reported in their paper which i found quite interesting is on the evolutionary scale um 
you have like the plants are very um, prone for diversity because they do this like genome duplication and that gives you more room to play around with genetic information and then adapt to um, to environments and so on and um, it was for a long time it was believed that there was a massive sort of um, in the total of the, the genomic information there was a massive explosion in diversity when there was a transition from uh, into the angiosperms and gymnosperms mm -hmm. so uh, when flowering plants and like nutty plants I guess like yeah. pines and stuff pines and conifers and now with this study they could find that no the diversity was already there when this happened and the diversity uh, sort of this explosion into different genetic backgrounds happened in the transition from uh, sea plants from water plants yeah. to land plants mm -hmm. and then sort of a lot of the, the the groundwork was already put down and then it was only a matter of uh, selection and div diverse further diversification to get to all of the different species that we know today um, but it, uh, sort of the the multiplication of genomes and and the, the creation of a lot of the genetic diversity was or was happening much earlier than believed uh, than what we believe today before um, so yeah so that's the paper uh, it's a nature paper. It's uh, it's pretty cool, and I think we'll see more stuff that's referencing that in the future now. Yeah, um, I have something that's just kind of a short read. If you're feeling a little bit freaked out being a woman in STEM, the Australia Science Channel. I saw this actually via a friend. Um, I think on Facebook. And it's just basically a discussion of one of the award winners, Amanda Leach, who's a scientist. Um, in Australia, she won the 2019 Telstra Northern Territory Businesswoman of the Year Award. Um, and it's just a story of the fact that she stepped away from doing scientific work in the lab for six years when she had two children. Um, and this career break was something that happened. And she said how she kind of, that she could get back into um, research after that. So it's just, it's, it's a very short story um, just where she says, hey, I had to take this break. I couldn't really afford to work full-time in science because childcare costs a lot. And also I didn't want to be my children to be full care science. Um, but this made it very hard to like transition back into science because part-time work was not really an option at the time, but she still did manage to transition back in. And now she got this amazing award. So maybe if you're feeling a little bit down and you want to get like a, a nice happy story, just go and check this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, I have so many things I want to talk about today. I don't have very much. So that actually works quite well. I think I'm okay. done with my facts, honestly. I did not collect very cool. many this then week. You, the listener, are now <laughs> uh, you're my, on time. my prisoner. Um, I have a story now, uh, also a nature paper, where they the researchers looked at what happens when you would convert all of agriculture in Eng England and Wales from conventional to organic. Oh, no. What would that mean? Do you want to take a guess what that would mean? Is it going to be a trick question? Um, England and Wales. No, I, I would guess that you can't feed as many people on the same amount of land. That exactly. would be my assumption. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it wasn't a trick. It's exactly what you think. It turns out that <laughs> Depends on who you ask. It's the... the um what they would answer so yeah they they looked at the the current consumption consumption of agricultural goods and um then looked if you would convert all conventional farming into um organic farming could you meet that demand and the answer is no um, you would have to convert more land into agricultural land mm -hmm. and uh, he uh, heavily rely on imports so sort of put the burden of production on other countries to feed 
the same amount of people mm. than before. It's not. It doesn't mean that now the UK or England and Wales are not relying on imports. Like they, no, no, they're not self-sufficient, but mm-hmm. it would it would get worse even. Um, uh, but what I also wrote in the in the in the paper that the only solution for this issue is not to say, okay, we're not doing organic farming at all, but we have to first uh, think about our consumption levels. Can we Mm. adjust them? Can we, for example, reduce meat so we'd use less less agricultural land to produce feed and so on? Um, But we can't just... uh, It's not that simple. They can just say, hey, farmers, just change to organic and then everything will be better. Mm. Um, It can, in terms of greenhouse gas emission, will actually get worse because then you need more land. Mm -hmm. For for the same, more land means also more tractors running on the land, more diesel that's used. Um, The imports require greenhouse gases for the transport and all of that. And all of this means more cost per item of produce, which might be affordable for you, but might not be affordable for other people as well. So they propose that we um, change the, the the consumption, but also um, set up a system that t- that takes the advantages from b- both systems. From like the, the good things about organic farming, the good things about conventional farming, and develop like an in- intermediate thing that is accepted. And mm-hmm. that's something that we ha- don't have right now. Organic farming is often very dogmatic, and um, conventional farming is often very just profit oriented and not for example uh, uh, thinking about ecological problems and both of these systems have disadvantages and we need something in the middle so that's a cool nature paper on that and um, the other thing before we end on a cat fact is uh, this CRISPR News. Oh no! <laughs> oh yes, I yes. do know what this is. Yes, there's a new CRISPR. There's a new stuff. CRISPR in town. A new CRISPR. There yes. should be like um this Western music and like pew pew like there's a new <laughs> CRISPR in town. Um yeah, there's a new CRISPR. There's an uh, article on Wired that does a very good summary of it. Yes. Can I quickly mention that this actually came up in my science communication workshop that I did? Ah. Because um I think it's exactly the same article in Wired. Is that the one that I sent you? Yeah, that's the one that you sent me. And it's the way um. It's a new CRISPR basically could potentially reduce... Can you tell me the title? Uh, New CRISPR technique could fix many more genetic diseases could fix many more genetic diseases. So it's, it's this idea of how to communicate science where you have to use the word could because you can't be like, yes, it definitely will. And how to mediate between being accurate and also still like having that excitement of novelty and yeah. like, yeah, cool stuff. Although I always feel funny about this because I feel it's upselling sometimes because... So what, what did they do before we discuss if it's upselling or not? Um, CRISPR, as you might know... Um, is a system where you have a guide RNA that finds a place in a DNA, then you do a little snip, and then the, the, the cell repairs it, and then you do a the snip repair, if you've got a Cas9, a, you, another thing attached. Yeah, so yeah, usually when we say CRISPR, attached. we mean CRISPR Cas9 or CRISPR Cas X. Yes, and the nuclease, the Cas9, it does a little snip in the DNA, then the cell repairs it. Very often it repairs it perfectly, but sometimes <coughs> it does it imperfectly and that creates mutations and these mutations is what we're after. And these are usually very small deletions of, mm-hmm. uh, of um, nuclear bases. So what we can do with it is powerful but limited in a way. Like we can knock out things most of the mm. time. And so You can make small deletions or bigger deletions and basically screw up genes. And yeah. like usually it involves either making the genes just like broken, like they don't like spell the right thing anymore or completely removing them by cutting in two different places. Yes. 
Um, and if you want to cut in multiple places, then the, the system gets more complicated. And there's like this multiplexing where you can have like a dozen RNAs, so a dozen target points where you snip. Mm. And um, then you can do a little bit bigger deletions and complica more complicated stuff. But, but the thing is, in many cases with human diseases, the problem is not that they have a gene that they want to get rid of. It's that the gene they have has a few mistakes in it. So you don't want to actually get rid of the gene. You want to fix those mistakes. And when traditionally you want to do that, you have you can you can do that already today with CRISPR-Cas9 with traditional CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, it's funny we can already say traditional; and it's a very young technique. Um, but then you have to put a sort of a template strand of DNA in there, and that makes the system much more complicated because getting foreign DNA into a cell um, can be complicated. It might be degraded, and then it has also be there at the right time when the repair happens. The so template basically is there that when the cell like it's cut, and then it tries to fix things, and then it sees something nearby. So instead of like making something, it just like copies basically from the template. And yeah. it's like, I'm just going to cheat and use this to fix what I've but got. But the template has to be physically near. Mm. It, it must not be degraded by the, by the cell. Um, There's some conditions involved. Terms and conditions apply. And that's why, although technically possible, it's not very often done. Um, and now in this research paper, they made, uh, they sort of supercharged the CRISPR system um, make, and making it able to cut, swap, change, and add base pairs of a target genes. So they can delete up to 80 um, base pairs. They can add up to 44 base pairs to it. They can modify um, bases and so on. And um, they achieved that by combining the nuclease Cas9 with a reverse transcriptase. Mm -hmm. um, that's an enzyme that takes RNA and transcribes it into DNA. And they couple this all together into like one package and modify this RNA that, that um, targets this location in the gene that it not only does the targeting, but also encodes for a stretch of DNA that you want to have actively transcribed in the area. Mm -hmm. So to create the template str uh, strand directly where you cut. Um, they call this whole thing uh, prime editing. And with all of the things that they can do with this now, they um, did some calculations and looked into the her uh, hereditary human diseases and say 89% of these diseases are caused by mutations that you can fix with their system. So their mm -hmm. system has all the tools available to fix these um, systems. They didn't fix 89% of those yet in experiments. Um, they did a proof of concept and they did just uh, um, cured or like treated three diseases in uh, human cell lines in the lab. Obviously, this is uh, um, basic research. This is not done yet in living mm -hmm. humans. This is done in cell lines in the lab. Um, and I think one of them was, for example, the sickle cell anemia that they could treat with that, um, plus two others. Um, yeah. So the big downside to this is that the enzyme complex that they create there, it's huge. It's it's uh, They say it's so big that you can't deliver it very well into animal cells. Um, because usually what you do, you, you have a very tiny needle and you poke into the cell and then you can micro-inject like nanoliters of liquid with your enzyme in there. But this enzyme is too large to fit through, uh, through such a needle. So they have to develop mm. new ways of actually bringing that into the cell so um, that it can effectively, effectively do its job. Um, yeah, and while I think like whenever it comes to human genome editing, I feel very funny about this. Like I, I think there's huge, very big questions that we have to address there. Like, do we actually want this? Because therapeutically, <laughs> there's hardly anything that you can say against treating her hereditary diseases. 
but the question to me is like who has access to this that actually reminds me that on um the nature briefing about a week ago or two weeks ago there was discussions with dennis rebrikov who is a um, russian biologist and he has now said that he's going to start CRISPR babies. He's trying to edit, a ba- edit babies to prevent deafness, although he's practicing now on non-deaf or from with non-deaf parents, but it's like a genetic mutation which is cause heritable deafness. Yeah. Um, and when he was asked, do you think you should slow down? He was like, are you kidding? Why? So. Yeah. Yeah, And I feel this, um, yeah, I think it's a very complicated discussion that I don't want to really start now. <laughs> um, but whenever I see something about like medical use of genome editing, I think we should really carefully look at what we're doing there and not just on the like first level, but also on the, like the secondary level or tertiary level. Like what does it do to a society if we are able to specifically give some people access to alter their genes that also like downstream their kids are better genetically better than other kids um uh, and so on um but and there's also the discussion about what that does to the diversity of our population and like what we lose by yeah by changing people in these ways right like this is also a question and what's stopping us from like not only doing diseases but also other traits um, later on if we figure out um, I, I know like for example a body height is a very complex trait uh, that you can't easily just manipulate a single gene or a few single genes and then but penis size is just one single nucleotide polymorph I'm tell kidding guys tell me about it. I need I'm kidding no. uh, but I think why I, what that's I put totally going to be the spam we get in 10 years time like CRISPR-Cas9 your penis size <laughs> yeah genome edit your penis Um, uh, but for plant research and plant breeding I think this tool is extremely valuable because there the whole delivery doesn't matter as much because you can just put in as a transgene and then cross it out later on Mm. uh, but then do very advanced manipulation of genes because in plants we also sometimes have the issue that we want that we know what we want to do with the gene but can't a knockout is not what we want to do we want to introduce like certain things like change a promoter or something like this yeah and these days often what we do is we leave the native the normal version of the gene and then we put like other things on top of it which is not the best the best would be to like subtly change the native and really see what's happening then you don't have a mixed population yeah so for for plant research i think um this tool that they call prime editing um could be amazing that could do a lot there and um yeah, so. and, a, and a shout out to um, Megan Maltini, who's the um, the writer of this article on Wired. It's got like a really fun way of writing it. Like it starts off with Andrew Anzalone was restless. It was a late fall of 2017. And then it discusses the life of yeah. the scientist. It's like really his story. And also Casey Chin, who's the illustrator. And at the header of the page, you can see a really sweet graphic where it's just showing a DNA strand and it's showing some nucleotides basically falling out and being replaced by other nucleotides, which is also really beautiful. Um, I think I also followed her now on Instagram, but yeah, yeah. you should go check it out. This yeah. is quite cool. Yeah, it's definitely, it's def- the, the Wired article gives a very good overview of Casey everything. might not be a female name. That's I shouldn't just assume that everybody's a female. Uh, I, I prefer that over assuming everybody's male, but uh, that's again another discussion. <laughs> Let's end on uh, a cat fact that is not cat really... To me, I think the way I want to approach cat fact is that to me, all animals are cats. Some of hey. them are just better cats because they're actual cats. What happened with... Well, didn't we have cat fat music? We have cat... I can play Last cat Last time you music. didn't play it. <coughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> did, 
This is where the cat begins. This is where the cat begins. This, this is cat where fact. Cat fact uh, today is about bush crickets. Wait, wasn't that that was a very nice cat fact? Although no, that's is that comes at the end. Okay, sorry. Bush cricket. <laughs> bush crickets um, have the largest testicles. Oh, that's not even vaguely about cats. No, um, it's about uh, animals. Testicles. Uh, that's what I was saying. Like to me, all animals are cats. Some of them are just better cats. I understand that, but that was a really poor segue. I feel. I feel like you misled me. Yeah, but bush crickets have 14% of their body mass as testicles. Too much. That would for me that would be 14 kilograms. And that's <laughs> it's just too much. That's four melons, four average sized melons, just testicle mass. Um, I mean, it's roughly the weight of your current babies. So, I mean. <laughs> no, he's he's lighter than that. Mm. But yeah, it, it's it's a crazy thing about that. So the question is, like, can they like tuck them in somehow? Or do they have they a different? Have or they just abdomen. hang? They're okay. not hanging them. Like, no, that no, seems really inconvenient. No, um, and you I mean, just like hang more and more with age, but like fourteen kilos worth, it's really hanging <laughs> by like the time you're thirty. Um, so. Often when animals, like the testicle size of animals corresponds with the mating behavior in the way that um, larger testicles means more sperm per ejaculation. And that means that sort of to, to uh, here they say, um, to swamp out the competition. Um, so to to just have so much <laughs> sperm from your own, That's so disgusting. from yourself, that the other one... You're uh, just flooding the, yeah. I don't know, the uterus or the cervix of the other, the female cricket... Yeah. What do they have? Cloacas, probably, um, with sperm. Flooding it with your own sperm and just washing everything. Like Yeah, but not in crickets, so they don't do that there. Oh. Um, and that was a bit surprising to, to the researchers. Um, the bush crickets, for, for them, they do that so they can mate more often. So they can just very oh, often just repeatedly a bit meet uh, a mate um, without, <laughs> they say, uh, without their sperm reserves being exhausted. I am having this, like, ch ch like this like reloading <laughs> like of the shotgun, shotgun. <laughs> um, and then uh, one of the researchers from the study said males don't put all their eggs or rather sperm in one basket <laughs> um, so yeah that's on I found You're the story on, on Gizmodo um, uh, yeah I just found it interesting to think about like humans having these testicles which would be uh, and then I spent the rest of my day thinking about testicles, <laughs> and it was a w day well spent. And another number from the article is that humans have about 0.05% of their body weight as testicle, which is like nothing compared to the 0.05? Yeah. It's not a lot. Not compared to the 14% of a cricket, of a bush cricket. Do you think that should be on people's Tinder profiles? <laughs> But what would that mean to you? How would you like what? use that number? Would you be like impressed by large numbers or scared by large numbers? Or would you I think there would be a normal curve, but I think that's for everything, right? Like, yes. I mean, because I find it quite weird that everybody has their height, and I'm like, is that the most? I guess it's obviously very important if it's if it's there, but like, most people have not most people. I'm hashtag not all not all Tinder people, but a lot of them just have the height, and I'm like, this is what I should care of. Okay, <laughs> okay, why not? Yeah. Um, well done, society. <laughs> maybe, really maybe they use that as a proxy. They say, like, look, if you know my height, you can mm. estimate my body weight. And from that, you can estimate, you know, it's 0.05%. <gasps> so. I, no, I learned this thing in Italian. So it's <laughs> it's not in Italian. My Italian friends taught me, and apparently it's well known in Italy. And I didn't know it, so I'm assuming it's an Italian thing. So there's, like, make a finger with L. Have you? Do you know that? So it's if you're tall, and then imagine what the leg of the L is. Now turn it on the side. So if you're short... Yeah, we go. All right, guys, just like do the do it with me now. Turn it upside down. To, and this is apparently a cliche in in Italy. 
<laughs> so no you're you're wrong i should be looking maybe that's the thing maybe they're putting their height because like they're proud that they're short yeah it's inversely correlated maybe i don't um, think there's any correlation yeah i don't know um i didn't look into the correlation between height and penis length um i just know about you just know testicle crickets sizes and in testicle crickets. Sizes. i'm a very niche, a niche expert yeah. <laughs> We've all got to have a research niche, and you've chosen <laughs> yours, and that's okay. And all my research is reading one article on Gizmodo. About yeah. It. Well. Um, yeah, I found this over Twitter from Hank Green, uh, who's another science communicator, who just Thanks, posted Hank. with very little comment, um, just like a screenshot of the of the title of the paper. Thanks, Hank. Please send us all of more <laughs> more exciting things. Um, yes, uh, I think we're done. Follow us on all of the social media. On Instagram and Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. There you can talk to me. And on Twitter, um, we're at Plants Pipettes. Um, we also have a blog. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there we also release our podcast. But the podcast you can find also on all non-Spotify things. But you probably know that because you're listening to the podcast. You could listen to this on the website and wonder how could you be notified about this every week? Can you like yeah. maybe set up a Google alert or something? It's no. just not on Spotify. It's everywhere else. Like It's literally just not on Spotify. Yeah, and some other... like paid platforms like audible that are only big in germany or oh, is audible outside of germany as well i think it is i've heard it on like this american life oh okay yeah but uh, yeah hey ira you owe us money because i just plugged your show <laughs> yes hello ira. please send monies um yeah but on the we don't uh, not only have the podcast there uh we also have articles um about plant research yeah we write about oh sorry no say it Current current research, new journals, new papers that are published, and also like general cool stuff that we think is cool. Yeah. We could be wrong. You know what? Write to us and tell us, hey, Tegan, this was not cool. Or Yoram, you did a shitty article. How about you write about this instead? And maybe we'll do it. You're always encouraging our listeners to complain about what they're listening yeah, to. Yeah, because I think the, like the complaining will make me like kind of gleeful and you will just be really like annoyed so yeah, like i mean you, it's a you have to know me. that i have a very loose block finger mm. when somebody annoys me <laughs> online whereas i feed off the chaos so yes. just think about that listeners the more you troll me the stronger i get <laughs> yeah and the more you troll me the less likely it is that i will actually hear from you because you'll be blocked yeah uh, but please also <laughs> you can send this discussion about like at what point science communication stops being science communication if you just block everybody who's being an asshole yeah <laughs> uh, I, I i firmly believe in the power of blocking um Deplatforming the assholes that's very important mm. uh, Deplatforming works but that's another discussion for another <laughs> day you can also send us nice things suggestions comments anything that we uh, we got wrong we are happy to do corrections please rate us on any of the iTunes or other podcast apps five yes. stars please yes that, w- that would help not us a lot not less than five less than five is bad if you unless really it's d- on a scale out of ten maybe a different platform well, yeah is. if you but then it's still more than five you're <laughs> If you really don't think that it's a good podcast and you don't want to give us five out of five, just imagine in your head that it's out of a hundred and still give us five. Yes. yes Adaptive that's a good thinking. Point. <laughs> I'm very wise. All right. So, 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 so wise. It's only nine o'clock here, but it feels like 10 o'clock because we went forward in time, back in time. One of the time things because we of stupid traveled. daylight saving today and I'm angry and it's dark outside. Yes. Um, Goodbye. Opening, closing music, Philip Gross Caravana. Very good. No, I already said goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.